And we are your hosts for today's broadcast, following top news stories of the day. Good, great, grand, wonderful. I have a bad feeling about this. What ain't no country I ever heard of? They speak English and what? It's the good, the bad, and the what? Lost your train of thought, didn't I? <laughs> Hello, and welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The What, the show in which we dissect what makes a movie good, bad, or other within a certain theme, category, subgenre, or filmography. I am Chris Thomas. And I'm Ryan Oliver. Uh, how you doing, Ryan? I'm good, man. How are, I, I'm good. We, uh, I guess a little peek behind the curtain. Um, we usually record these in the morning, or at least morning my time. I guess we've never delineated this, but uh, we're on different coasts. Um, <laughs> but we usually record these on Sunday, post them on a Friday, uh, but we postponed them. It's evening, so um, I have some bourbon. Um, so <laughs> fair forewarning, uh, this episode could get a little toasty. It could fall apart uh, in the later minutes. Uh, let's hope possible. not. I, I also have my own little uh, glass of whiskey. Uh, it's actually a uh, Batman Forever uh, Two-Face uh, glass, which relates to the episode today. So I guess that's a good segue for Ryan you to introduce the picks that you've subjected me to this week, and then we can uh, get into it. Subjected you to? God, you make me sound like such a villain you know you on did. this. <laughs> I, yeah, I guess... Well, for one starter, so as I teased at the end of last week, uh, we were talking about sequels that shifted in tone from their predecessor. Um, but I should correct what you said. Two of these picks are mine. One of these picks was actually your wife's pick, Chris. Yes, um, that's true. And I, I will say that as soon as I say all of them. Uh, and she did good, actually, because <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the original, you know what? No, we might do that movie on another episode, so... I'm just not going to say it, but. Well, that, that was something I was going to say is, is because it's tone shift sequels, we're not going to be able to go through the episode without at least mentioning or alluding to the, the you know, the predecessor uh, in some way. I mean, we, we need to be able to explain how the tone shifted. So I think we will in one way or another, at least somewhat talk about the film, but yes, I would like to save it for a different episode later on. Agreed. So I will just get into the picks here. Uh, for the good, I have chosen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 from 1986, directed by Toby Hooper. For the bad, I have chosen Batman Forever from 1995, directed by Joel Schumacher, uh, which explains Chris's two-faced glass that he's drinking out of. And the what was actually chosen by Chris's wife, which is Escape from L.A., from 1996, directed by John Carpenter. Uh, Chris, you mentioned the theme for this week, and she's like, oh, you mean like Escape from L.A. being different from Escape from New York? Yes, and that was actually <laughs> perfect, because um, we're going to start with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, of course, but um, there are some baseline similarities. For example, both Toby Hooper and John Carpenter, respectively, prefer this sequel to their much more lauded predecessors respectively um, and one might say inexplicably uh, inexplicably in, yeah. in the case of escape from la escape from la for sure but i think maybe that's a good spot to start with the texas chainsaw massacre part two um because i know toby hooper r.i.p um you know has always stated um first off i guess even further back 
I should say before starting this episode, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the first one, to me, is arguably the greatest horror movie ever made. I fucking love the movie. I, I, you know, my favorite's Nightmare on Elm Street because it got me into the genre. But I think this, right. it's such, such a masterwork, you know, in experiential terror as a Vietnam allegory. The cinema verite style makes it so like you know both disorienting and also realistic and therefore right. it's just it's just it's to, to me i've seen the movie so many times and i know what's going to happen every single time and it still puts knots in my stomach every right. time sally ends up at that dinner table from that scene to the end i'm just like i'm completely in knots i think it's a masterpiece um but hooper himself has stressed many times both in the commentary of the texas chainsaw part two and in other interviews that there was elements of dark comedy in that movie that did not shine through and so that's why he kind of wanted to make the sequel a little bit more overtly comic uh, almost troll it in a way um because uh, it is... are you trying to tell me that you didn't think that the texas chainsaw massacre was a laugh riot Oh no, it's hilarious. Oh, no, it's no, but, up the whole time. <laughs> no, but it is so weird that like what I remember the first time, I think it was when the Scream Factory Blu-ray of part two came out. And I watched mm. it and it was before Hooper had sadly passed away. Um, but I, right. I adore the movie, and so I wanted to I wanted to watch it with the director's commentary, and that was like the first thing he said. He's like, Yeah, I really thought there was there was some humor in the first one, but it, it never really shined through. So I, I I wanted to make this more of a dark comedy. And I was like, wait, what? I don't. Yeah, I'd ask. I'd ask where in the first movie that the comedy was supposed to be. None because I mean, if it's there, it is as subtle as can be. It, it's so effective in being unsettling that the only time you would laugh is, is like out of nerves or like trying to ease some tension. Ease the tension. Trying to ease the tension. <laughs> oh my god, that is way too inside of a joke for at this point in this podcast. But. Yeah, it's so weird. I mean, maybe when they pick up the hitchhiker, like I could see some elements of that, but even then it's so unnerving and that he right. just immediately starts cutting his own wrist like right then and there is just like, you know, it's- But even then unsettling. like the, you you might get a chuckle out of that uh, hitchhiker that they pick up and just how weird he's acting, but like it's owed to the movie being so low budget. I think the, the budget for the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre was like, 150,000 or it's something yeah, stupid cheap. low budget and I, I think because of that it really really helped the the film like you know, having it being really really you know dirty and quick and um but also just because they needed to shoot this scene that happens in a car there was no budget to do a follow car or rigs outside of the car or anything like that to, to give it um what might some somebody might consider a, a more cinematic feel or like a, a bigger uh, larger production might be able to do them but by having just a dude with a camera on his shoulder in the back of that van with him and shooting everything in really close quarters it, that entire scene is so claustrophobic and so tense and like when he pulls the knife out like everyone is is so close proximity that you're like okay he can lash out at any moment and kill any of these characters and this guy is clearly unhinged like it, it starts at the very beginning and it doesn't let up for the entire movie which is really the the to me the genius of texas chainsaw is that it just does not let you feel comfortable at any moment no it doesn't and 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 
even in the change of tone, which we should definitely shift into part two here. Yes. Um, even in the change of tone, there are moments of that, I think, as well. Like, it, it sure. does show that, like, Hooper was no fluke in that choice. I, I think specifically the the sort of um, radio station invasion scene, which we'll get to probably in more detail. But, like, the, yeah. there's a really good, like, build up and then payoff of tension in, in that scene for sure. So, right. um, but a little bit of context for Texas Chainsaw Massacre part two. So this is a long gap sequel as well. This movie that came out 12 years after the original. Um, if anyone has seen the, um, the Canon films documentary, electric boogaloo, the wild untold story of Canon films um, at, at this point, Canon just, you know, power drunk film money drunk, just yeah just throwing money left and right Anything. they were like we we could get you know whoever we could get to who has any sort of cachet who will take the contract we're gonna sign you know they partnered with warner brothers and did a couple stallone movies like cobra and over the top uh that's how we got the death wish sequels because they're like yeah death wish charles bronson <laughs> oh, good. uh yeah exactly i'm sure that's gonna come up in a later episode <laughs> but um but one of the ones uh, was Toby Hooper after, cause this was after Poltergeist uh, mm-hmm. Poltergeist was of course a big hit. I know there's a lot of, um, you know, questions of like who really directed Poltergeist because of the DGA rules at that time Spielberg was doing ET. Mm-hmm. So he couldn't direct another movie, but there's been reports that he ghost directed it, whatever the case may be. I don't really care uh, because Hooper was, right. he's the credit director. He was a part of that movie. Uh, I think the unrelenting Spielberg final- has come out. Spielberg has come out and said that that was that was Toby Hooper's direction that he was there obviously on set and and was pretty heavy handed in producing the film but he was like this it's Toby Hooper's movie put it to Mm -hmm. bed so I'm going to trust that I'm going to trust Spielberg for that as well because even though it has this feel like there's no question about it like the last third of Poltergeist how like unrelenting it is is very much like Toby Hooper's style like the the Mm -hmm. last third of Poltergeist is pretty comparable to the final third of the texas chainsaw massacre really um just one's less dire than the other for sure um but so poltergeist came out was a massive hit so canon was like okay you know toby hooper he's a hot horror director they signed him to a three-picture deal basically said that you could do whatever the fuck you want the only stipulation is one of the movies has to be a sequel to texas chainsaw massacre uh that was the only stipulation of it he had carte blanche to do whatever he wanted with the movie. Um, initially he wasn't even going to direct it. He was just going to produce it, but the budget right. was four and a half million, which much bigger than the first, but still pretty low budget. Um, they couldn't afford another director for that budget. So he just decided no. to make it himself. Um, and so it, it, this one is, I mean, yeah, it's, it's a Looney tune for sure. Um, I mean, I know it's definitely, if the first one is a sort of like, you know, allegory for Vietnam and coming back home with PTSD and going through all this hell. Uh, this one is definitely like eighties excess, uh, excess, excuse me, uh, yuppie culture, uh, as evident by the opening scene, we have a couple mm-hmm. like college, you know, f- dude bros for lack of a better term calling and, and, uh, you know, pretty much verbally sexually harassing our, our radio DJ stretch played stretch, by Carolyn yeah. Williams. Um, you know, and just the movie and then the movie in and of itself is excessive. Um, you know, the Tom Savini, the great Tom Savini, the uh, legend did, himself, the legend yeah. himself did the effects of this movie. And like, God damn, he he didn't have to go that hard, <laughs> but I'm glad well, no. that he did. <laughs> but I mean, like 
off the bat, you're already naming like all of these things that were tone shifts. Cause I mean, like Texas Chainsaw is regarded as being like a, a, a gross out slasher gore pick. There's really not a lot of blood in so minimal. Texas Chainsaw. There's very little. It's all off screen, all implied um, gore. And then you kick off the, the first kill that's in Texas Chainsaw 2 is a dude getting his head uh, sawn in half from the crown at a 45 degree angle. And, and it just, slides off. <laughs> and just geysering blood into the air. Just, just shooting it out like a hose. And it, it's so extreme in the other direction. But I mean, I love tom savini so i'm 100 on board with it yeah i do too and and i'm glad that you know and it's funny enough too because the movie um it was released as unrated um funny enough not to talk about a thing that nobody heard but we were talking about the mpa on mic off mic uh, a little bit ago and uh it was gonna get an x which i mean yeah i think it's very clear i mean you just between the saw and half at the crown i mean and that's not the half of it you know poor Poor radio, radio uh, assistant LG gets oh, yeah. his face completely torn off and and, and forced to be worn by uh, by Stretch, our yeah. our disc jockey. It's it's deeply deeply unsettling, deeply gory, and it's, so it's like I understand. I get you know I don't usually sympathize or relate to the MPA in any way, shape, or form. But this is one of those few instances where I'm like, I get it. I get why you were going to slap this with an X oh, yeah. rating. It's really fucking violent. Oh, yeah. Well, and the sexual themes as well are, are pretty overt. I mean, there's really, I mean, there's no nudity that I can think of in the movie. Unless there's like maybe like a corpse or something in the background. But even then, I, mean, I think Grandma's corpse boobs are on screen at the very end. But that's not sexual nudity. So I don't think that would have gotten flagged at all. But no, it's all there's still overt sexuality with the the chainsaw used as a bladed phallus that's pretty <laughs> it's something it's yep. a it's a scene that happens it does we'll, we'll get there so i guess <laughs> I, was, I should probably set the stage of the plot of the movie yeah. just a little bit as well so uh we mentioned the opening scene a couple yuppies are driving to a um i forget which college it is but there's like a big game in texas uh somewhere that's happening they're driving and they call the radio station and uh, stretch uh, excellently played by Carolyn Williams keeps like telling them hey quit calling hey hang up the phone she's on the phone when one of them gets their head completely sawn off I mean they both get killed but the one guy we see in horribly gruesome detail well, um, which that scene can we can we kind of break down that scene of their their death because it's especially related to the first film it immediately sort of like sets up the world of this new one is like this isn't your dad's Texas Chainsaw like it's so different for one i mean for one you know i mentioned at the top that you know the original has such a like cinema verite documentary style so like this one of course like starts i mean it starts with voiceover narration and text just like the first one does mm-hmm. talks about how sally got out at the end of that movie and then she was completely catatonic afterwards and like nobody kind of believed her and then you know it's been a decade but now all these bizarre chainsaw murders are half murders are happening again and then we cut and we have this beautiful like widescreen technicolor like this movie's super colorful like the color oh, yeah. saturation in the movie is like deep and heavy and so it's like you know like you said tone style in the Mm. amount of violence because again it sets the tone of like the first was very minimal um but it's so good at putting you in that perspective that 
people think the original is more violent than it actually is because you're in that perspective versus right. this one, like, you know, full-blown gore, full-blown color. And so, yeah, it completely sets the tone differently because, um, you know, we're, we're, we're watching a trip at the beginning of the first one. And I guess similarly this one, these guys are taking a trip, uh, right. but instead of like slow, the slow build of it immediately, they're picked off. Like you mm-hmm. think these jackholes are going to be our protagonists kind of like the way the movie sets it up i'm to really be. glad they're not i'm glad too very very glad they're not <laughs> they because they're assholes <laughs> so it sets the tone of that so those guys get off brutally and quick their murder is being investigated by a, a, a detective slash a, a cop um not from that town uh played by dennis hopper um whose son the or no is his son only. or brother i can't remember it's his brother right or brothers. So there's a family he, member who was killed by yeah. the Sawyer family. He was Franklin's uncle, Franklin and um, Sally. Uh, he's their uncle. That's right. And I guess their dad is dead, but he's now trying to find the killers because of that, because of the incident for the first movie. So he's trying to find the killers and he's, right. I mean, Dennis Hopper. I mean, that that's a whole conversation in of itself. He's fucking, <laughs> Uh, you know, he there's an interview where he said that this was the, the worst movie he'd ever been in. Um, but then he said he's the wrong. same thing. Well, he's wrong. He also said the same thing about Super Mario Brothers, arguably right. Might have been right. Yeah, on that one. <laughs> but like he said that a few times. It's just like he just needed. I guess he needed money. I don't know what the case may be. This movie it came out the same year as Blue, Blue Velvet. Velvet. Yeah, which is crazy. Um, you know, but his and, character I mean, is very similar to the character in blue velvet he's really. pretty frank booth-esque only a good guy <laughs> which is crazy um but it, it's funny because i know dennis hopper's top build in this movie but it's like and, and i love dennis hopper but like to me he's always been like kind of a non-entity in this movie weirdly enough like i i know even before i ever saw the movie like the one thing i only knew about it was like him dual wielding the chainsaws like i've seen that image before i was aware of that but then like watching the movie the first time i ever watched it i'm like well like carolyn and williams and bill mosley are like the the rock stars of this movie like they're the ones who make this movie i think what it is in addition to savini's effects and and hooper's uh direction but like hopper's just like it's kind of funny because it's dennis hopper and he's going ham uh much like another great actor in the next movie we're going to talk about but uh <laughs> but like it's fun but it i don't know he's just always never he's been kind of a non-starter in this movie well, for me story-wise he's pretty inconsequential as well because i mean he comes to town to sort of do the investigation but uh, it stretch you know incidentally is on the phone when the two yuppie bros get killed so mm-hmm. she plays it i mean it's it's uh, Dennis Hopper's suggestion where he says you should play that tape out over the air and then that sort of kicks off everything you know he was the one to sort of seed that plot line but then as Stretch is getting attacked and she shows heroism by chasing them instead of going to the cops for whatever reason and like while all that is going on Dennis Hopper is like in the background testing out chainsaws at a, a place and <laughs> yeah. like hacking this away at, at a log or whatever and to, to the enjoyment of like some toothless dude who runs the place and he's driving around and, and while while stretches in the subterranean amusement park uh going through all this madness with the sawyer family he's like 
walking around and just discovering oddities and stuff until he's needed again in the plot. So, I mean, like, he's top build, and I love his performance in the movie because it's it's delightfully unhinged as it should be when it's Dennis Hopper. But, yeah, you're right. It, like, he's not the star. He, he's not the driving force of the movie. No, because, it, you know, as you succinctly put in there yeah stretch is the driving force of the movie he's he suggests that but yes he plays the tape on the air of the murders happening which then leads to uh chop top played by bill mosley uh, in probably the most unsettling performance and that's kind of what i was for, referring to at the beginning because there's a siege at the the radio station that has mm-hmm. that similar like build up of like you know she's you know they've played the because it's 86 so like both broadcast and radio like they play the national anthem and then they go off the air mm-hmm. uh so like she'd already done that she's getting ready to leave the radio station bill mosley is just sitting in the waiting room like you know talking about how like he's a big fan and he wanted to request music and it's just like it music just, it's just like my life. it's my life um you know and then speaking <laughs> of music of course the the he the line he says uh dog will hunt is you know most famously yeah. in primus's jerry was a race car driver um but anyway uh so it's like that that tension builds of him just like right and then all of a sudden leatherface busts through the door uh you know starts chasing her that moment of him busting through because there's there's sort of a good build up with bill mosley who i love his performance in this as well uh, apparently he got the job because after seeing the first Texas Chainsaw and being in love with it, he like recorded himself playing the hitchhiker or playing a, a character related to the hitchhiker, which got into the hands of Toby Hooper, who told himself if he were to make a, another Texas Chainsaw movie, um, he would just have uh, Bill Mosley play that part or, or play some other part. Uh, in the movie and so then when this came along he was immediately like okay we need somebody to fill in as a hitchhiker we need to hit up that bill mostly guy so he comes in 100 percent dedicated i think he shaved his head for like the, the the prosthetic of the the plate like he was 100 percent gung-ho on board with it but i what you're saying in his sort of interaction with stretch where he's he's got this uh like rusted coat hanger he's picking at the the edges of his uh head plate and eating the dead skin off of it and just this yeah. manic just laughing to himself and it feels like he's playing a game with stretch and then the reveal of leatherface is when he's done giving him the the tour of the studio um, which he tells him that he needs to leave and he says something to the effect of like well uh, where do you keep the new music looking into a darkened doorway and then like boom lights come on leatherface is in the doorway chainsaw already revved like like it's just it's immediately loud immediately bright and he's running right at the screen and it's like i mean to me at least it's it's the same level of jump scare as sort of the first texas chainsaw when the 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 dude goes into the house and leatherface appears in the doorway and and like meat hammers him in the head it was like that same level of like shit he's there and like that's his first reveal so i did like the juxtaposition of the two but this one's of course a bit louder and a bit more extreme oh yeah oh you mean it's not extreme when he comes in to threaten stretch with his chainsaw as you already alluded to oh. as a giant yeah. phallus and then she's in like a, there's like an ice bucket in there that she's just like you know basically toying with him at that point basically yeah. like hey like hey hey come on like big boy like she knows she can see that like id inside of him mm. 
Uh, and so she just basically like does that until he's, you know, climaxes in his own way yeah. and, and leaves. It's, um, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, like that it's scene. A weird. It's a weird thing that they did with Leatherface's character in this movie. So, I mean, in the first movie, he is obviously, he's sort of a, a, abused by the rest of the, the family and stuff. Like he's sort of, he's seen as like the idiot or the runt of the family and they treat mm-hmm. him that way. And they more or less do that the, the same in, in Texas Chainsaw too. But his character didn't show any like any real levels. He's just insane and running around and stuff. And there was only ever really the scene um, when uh, the in the first Texas Chainsaw, uh, the the 45 year old teenager, Disco Stew uh, guy, when he goes looking for the friends and he stumbles into <laughs> the kitchen um, and Leatherface comes running in and, and brains him with the hammer. Uh, he like runs into the next room and looks out the window all scared and, and he like sits and he like looks kind of like nervous, like, oh, like, oh my God, I almost got caught. And that's really the, the range of emotion that you get from him in the first movie. And so then for this one to sort of almost humanize the character and be like, no, he like, he is like sexually interested in, in women and can feel love or, or feel like some sensation of like caring for somebody. Cause he left tries to help her escape a number of times in the movie. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's really weird that, that the direction that they ended up taking Leatherface. I wouldn't say I, whether I like it or not. I think it's, it's just another example of Toby Hooper's like, I'm not going to do the same thing I already did before. Yeah. And it, I, I do think it's at least interesting. Um, kind of similarly, like whether I like it or not is kind of irrelevant. It's at least an interesting departure because, you know, you set it up perfectly where it's like he is the runt and he's off, you know, he's treated as such. Um, similarly in this movie. And and I think the, the problem is too, and I think this plagues like the sequels going after this movie too like the plethora of ones that we've had after this too is because leatherface it has the look you know he's got he's got like the iconic look you know when people maybe not me or you but just generally speaking i feel like when people kind of put together their like slasher mount rushmore so to speak it's like michael myers jason Voorhees, freddy krueger mm-hmm. leatherface well first of all like these movies aren't particularly slasher movies i wouldn't say but like because he's got a mask and he's got he's kind of like a mascot so to speak he gets put in that role Mm -hmm. but it's like he doesn't really have i mean it's the sawyer family as a whole like you know grandpa is more sinister (laughs) and chop top or more sinister than than he is yeah so i do find that at least interesting but like the the further sequels try to like you know try to make him the you know either the front and center or they try to psychoanalyze like this movie called leatherface that came out a couple years ago um you know and it's just like you know there's i was like there's nothing really like it's all said here i feel like and i feel like hooper was smart enough to be like look you know we could agree disagree whatever he thought about the dark comedy of the first one but even he was smart enough to be like we can't replicate the first one so we're not going to and i think that's no. a smart move you can't top uh, it either it's... no it's a ballsy move because you have a built-in audience kind of mm-hmm. similarly when we talked about tv adaptations like you have a built-in audience you run the risk of alienating them but we're still gonna you know we're still gonna try something different and you got to at least respect him as a filmmaker to be like i'm an artist so i need to continue to create things and dipping back into the same well is not there's nothing creatively stimulating about that. I understand that Canon Films was, we want you to replicate the success of the first Texas Chainsaw, but 
to Toby Hooper is just like, I'm not going to make the same movie. And I can at least respect that. And I think everybody should. Exactly. Which, you know, he got carte blanche to make this movie. And it was funny because I guess Golden Globus like notoriously did not like the movie or they were upset because they're like, oh, we didn't know you were making a comedy. I was like, well, first of all, you let him make the movie he wanted to make. Second of all, I think some, I forgot who said it. Somebody said it in the Cannon Films documentary. I'll have to go back and watch it. But someone's like, the poster has them in the breakfast club pose. Like, how did you not know <laughs> that the movie yeah. was a comedy? <laughs> Which is like the best line what you said he was <laughs> making. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, which I love that poster. I have the, it's like the reverse art on the Blu-ray and I have it. Uh, it's so good. Oh, it's great. I, I feel like, and I mentioned this at the top of like him trolling the first movie. Um, you know, I, I do think that a little bit that's deliberate because I think, you know, I mean, now it's pretty much widely regarded i mean it was pretty highly regarded at the time too but i think people who detracted the movie talked about like the last third of the movie being like an amusement park ride so naturally he sets the third act of this movie at an actual amusement park at a act literally it's somewhere in dallas i don't remember but it's an actual abandoned amusement park that they film this movie in oh okay yeah, so like, so it's like I, I feel like he knows, like he he's like he's like, hey, I'm gonna take all. I'm the wondering how much that was set dressing and how much that was practical, like location. Uh, probably a little column A, column B. The actual location, like, there's it's very possible, and I don't know enough about this. I'm sure they maybe made some props and some stuff for it, um, but the actual like, at least the actual exterior of it. Not the underground cave, but the actual like exterior was a theme park, was a, a, a dilapidated theme park. Um, and we were just sort of shooting each other messages back and forth. I, I had even mentioned that I loved that the end of this really leans into that. I mean, like for how comedic it is. And another thing that we didn't mention, we were talking about the scene in the um, radio station um, is the lighting. Uh, a lot of the strange lighting, and you did mention the colors and use of colors in the movie, but it's almost like creep show level where there's like yeah. this blasted green on the wall and pink hues and stuff. So when it gets into the underground layer portion for the final bit of the movie, and it's 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 like a carnival. It, it's like and it and it treats itself like one. Um, and I think it really sort of sets it up because like they're they're building up to a moment where Dennis Hopper is going to have a chainsaw fight with Leatherface. Mm -hmm. So they kind of have to just let the audience know, like, buckle up, hands inside the cart. We're going to have a little fun for a bit before the, before we see this off. And I, I really, I respect the hell out of it being like, no, this is just going to be a fun thing that we do and come along. It's going to be great. Yeah. I mean, the movie really is a lot of fun. Like, I, I don't think I'll make it a case, especially watching it this time for being like, I know, I know some people think it's like a really like secret stealthily, like masterwork and and you know i mean i think it's really fun I, I don't think i'd go that far but i do think as you know as someone who's just you know again creatively was like hey i'm not going to do the same thing so here's what i'm going to do something different i think it's a lot of fun and you know uh, i think thus far i want to say mostly we've talked about movies whether they were a good or bad or what that were financially successful we got two on this episode that um we're not really uh, <laughs> i think this movie made double its very low budget but it still was not the hit that canon was hoping for i know that one of the things one thing that i noted this time too i read the about this and and it makes total sense watching the movie uh it was important for canon for this movie to be between 90 and 100 minutes because they could have more show times throughout the day mm -hmm. 
so they cut a bunch out of the movie apparently um oh which which like i'm kind of glad but at the same time it's like it is a little still even a little herky-jerky in terms of like mm-hmm. how we get from point a to point b but i know there's a scene i think it either takes place at a theater or it's just like a crazy movie goer like i know joe bob briggs made a cameo uh that was cut out of the movie yeah. uh, i know there was like a couple other like notable stuff that was cut out of the movie as well um but then of course it was re- released unrated and a lot of theaters even more so than an x well i guess maybe theaters would play an unrated more than an x but it's like some theaters probably wouldn't play this movie either so i'm sure that hurt it was also i mean a horror slasher movie back in the 80s so i mean like it's it's got name recognition sure but it was critically panned and it was like right in the glut of everybody is churning out slasher after slasher after slasher so at this point audiences were already burnt out on the genre so i would expect it to be a huge hit like texas chainsaw was because when texas chainsaw came out there was literally nothing like that that had ever been in a theater before no it was completely unique and i think that's that's i'm glad you put that because the context is important here this is 1986 so it's like we're on Friday the 13th part five had come out. Um, yeah. Halloween. We had three Halloweens, um, at least two nightmare on Elm streets, which got a late start. Elm street didn't start till 84. So like, you know, this, this movie came way late. Um, oh, and you'd had uh, two or two or maybe three at this point, uh, jaws movies. Yeah. You have sort of the off brand ones uh, that, I mean, the burning prom night, terror train sleepaway uh, camp which we talked about valentine sleepaway camp so i mean like there was so many things coming out at so like such a rapid pace and each of them was trying to have their own gimmick that the audience was just like i'm sure by the time this came out it was texas chainsaw 2 but critics hated it and people said it was a comedy that they were just like i'm not gonna fucking bother yeah (laughs) they didn't care yeah they didn't care at this point Though I think they showed up for the year later for Friday the 13th Part 6, which is also a comedy, really. So, right. you know, who's to say what's going to hit and what's not? But I think because, I mean, back to the sort of theme of the episode before we move on to our next movie. Um, I mean, I think that's really what the key was. I mean, I think people, if they were hoping for a second Texas Chainsaw, they were hoping for something in the same vein. And Hooper was like, oh, I'm not going to do that. Right. And, you know, I, I think that, you know, it did alienate people um obviously it stood the test of time you people do like it now it's been reappraised as as a as a you know as a good horror comedy uh and a different sequel but yeah the time people were very upset (laughs) with it being a different movie for sure well and i think uh, there's definitely been other movies uh horror movies that have followed a similar vein of you know successful first movie we're gonna make a sequel but we will uh, elevate some elements, pour a bit more money into it, and make a better movie. I think the Evil Dead is probably the best example of that, where the second one really embraced the the dark comedic roots, uh, and but it's basically a retelling of the first Evil Dead, yeah. just higher budget and, and you know better effects and, and whatnot. Arguably, so, Friday the Thirteenth Part and, Two as well. You know, leaned yes, more. Absolutely. You know, le- leaned, replicated the template, but leaned more into the like slasher elements as opposed to the whodunit elements. Right. Yeah. I, well, they pretty much wholly got a, like did away with the whodunit elements. Yeah. Um. And uh, I mean, we'll leave. We'll definitely circle back around the Friday Thirteenth uh, series and its. Oh yes. <laughs> very sticky history of uh, more than one way sticky history. Um. There's a lot to discuss there. Um. But I, I think I think. 
before moving on, I, I think to anybody who listens in, I know that the, not everybody likes Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but I think uh, if you were to look at it through the lens that you probably looked at the same lens as something like Evil Dead 2, um, it, it's a lot more of an enjoyable movie if you're not expecting um, a terrifying ride and more of just a thrill ride. Yeah, if you could appreciate it for what it is and what Toby Hooper was aiming for for the movie, then I think you're going to have a good time. But yeah, similarly, if you're viewing it like 1986 viewers, like a sequel to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not that. Um, I mean, if you want that, you can watch the copious amount of crummy other sequels that have come out. I wouldn't recommend it. No, I wouldn't either. Part three is pretty much a, a almost like beat for beat like trying to be the first one right same with four though four at least is more memorable than three four at least has a little bit of a nudge and a wink to it um not to the degree that two does but sure um it's also made by kim hankel who co-wrote the first texas chainsaw so Mm, uh, there's like a little bit of a piss take in that one but that movie's fucking bananas um and then anything after that i i don't i don't don't recommend it just (laughs) yeah (laughs) if it wasn't hooper I don't. I don't think you should should uh, stick with it. Well, speaking of uh, sequels that uh, you would recommend people not see, you want to move into Batman Forever? Or? If we if we have to, I think I have more <laughs> beer left. So I I gotta say some things up front on this one. Um, for one, I'm not aiming to be mean here with this pick. Uh, you know, especially because it has been less than a year since Joel Schumacher passed away. Who, um, you right. know, who who is a who was you know. He had his ups and downs as a filmmaker, but he was a very sturdy journeyman, had just as many good films to his name as bad, um, you know, so may he rest in peace. Um, secondly, well, and this is also not entirely his fault. So yes. I like, want to get that out of the way. As Absolutely. Well. We're going to get into that. But th- this yeah. Batman Forever, I mean, you could say what you will about elements of Batman and Robin, but Batman Forever, not his fault. Uh, and we will get into that. Secondly, you know, Batman... I don't think there's a time in my life that I wasn't a fan of Batman. Like that I think about it, like one of the first movies I ever saw was Batman 1989. Um, More so than Star Wars. Like I know Star Wars is like the pop culture, you know, behemoth. But like for me, Batman, there's not a time in my life that I wasn't a fan of Batman. I'm sure you're similarly. Oh, yeah. But uh, maybe it's because I'm in the fandom. Batman, arguably, even more than Star Wars, also has the most toxic uh, fans. (laughs) And again, maybe it's because I'm a part of that. But like Batman fans, I I think even more than Star Wars fans tend to be shitty. I mean, I I said this off mic, but like Zack Snyder fans, maybe. But I don't think you have toxic Zack Snyder fans and toxic Christopher Nolan fans if they hadn't done Batman movies. I don't think anyone would give that much of a shit. Um, Right. But I think like Batman fandom has mutated into like toxic fandom of specific filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I would argue that that's the worst. Star Wars is terrible, but at least it kind of stays in its own little little corners of, of the world. And right. so basically, I know Batman Forever and Batman and Robin get a lot of shit, um, especially from like, you know, it's probably like homophobic dude bros who are like, mm-hmm. you're so gay. Like... <laughs> That's not the that's not the issue with the film. It's a no, it's, it's not. A, it's a quirk. 
I want to, it actually arguably makes it, if anything, interesting. It's like the only thing that makes it interesting. So I want to say up front to me, even as a huge Batman fan, I really don't care what you do with the character. There's no right way to do the character. As long as you make something good, I don't give a shit. But Batman Forever, to me, is the worst Batman movie. I'm going to say with Batman in the title. I want to also specify that. I want to specify that because it is it is better than Suicide Squad, Justice League. But I want to start there because it has similar roots as to why it's really bad, which is, you know, we talked about this with Texas Santa Massacre 2 with Toby Hooper. We're also going to get into this with Escape from L.A. as well. Both Hooper and Carpenter with that movie pretty much had carte blanche to make the movie that they wanted to make. Whether it turned out successful or not, they gambled with the change of the tone. It was the movie they wanted to make. This was not the movie Joel Schumacher wanted to make. Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, um, and, I, and it's probably well documented at this point, because like all the the 1989 through 1997 Batman movies for you know their ups and downs, their their DVD sets and then further Blu-ray and 4K sets are like textbook of how you do like behind the scenes like bonus features. There's like. Mm-hmm substantially long documentaries chronicling the making of these movies on every single one. So people are probably familiar with this, but at this point, if you're not Batman forever, um, you know, Batman returns came out, Tim Burton got carte blanche to make that movie. Uh, and it shows it's a weird kinky S and M version of Batman <laughs> uh, that I love. It's my favorite Batman movie of that era. Uh, maybe period, but it was still a hit not as big a hit as Batman 89. It was morose. McDonald's kind of notoriously pulled out of their Happy Meal deal. They're like, this movie's too dark. We don't want nothing to do with it. Um, So it made inherently less money than Batman. So Warner Brothers went back to the drawing board. They were like, we want something with four quadrant commercial appeal. They could sell a bunch of toys. That was basically (laughs) what they came back with from this. Burton didn't want to make it. So he had, he's still the producer on this movie, Tim Burton is. And he handpicked Joel Schumacher himself yeah. because Schumacher did, Schumacher loved the character. Schumacher wanted to do, I think like everyone does, wanted to do some sort of like iteration of year one and The Dark Knight Returns, which of course both seminal mm-hmm. Batman graphic novels. Um, any any Frank Miller adaptation you can do. Yeah, any, yeah, you, you, it's, it's, a good, it's a good call to do. Uh, so we wanted to do that and the they were like, well no <laughs> they're like well for one we don't want year one because we already have an origin which they do kind of have flashbacks in this movie of uh you know to that uh but two no we want it to be you know more colorful we wanted to appeal to kids so this movie again back to kind of circling back to what i said about suicide squad and justice league similarly this movie is completely a producer's vision um it especially watching it as an adult like this was my favorite one as a kid and maybe because i just loved jim carrey i i don't know uh but like this was my favorite one as a kid and watching it as an adult i'm like they didn't know what the fuck they were doing like i i think i don't want to get too far into it but it's like the batman subplot and the villain subplot are two completely different movies like the val kilmer chase meridian uh, or, or excuse me, Bruce Wayne, Chase Meridian, Val Kilmer, and um, Nicole Kidman, arguably weird psychosexual stuff left over from Batman Returns. Like it's very similar to the Bruce Wayne, Selena Kyle relationship in that movie about like Batman's duality and can Bruce Wayne and Batman actually coexist? 
could be interesting. I mean, it is interesting in theory, Mm -hmm. but it's totally juxtaposed with Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey, who are straight out of the Adam West Batman, which also in its own way, fine. But the two just are not simpatico. Like they do not work in this movie. Well, and I'm curious because of the stage that Joel Schumacher came into the movie, I'm wondering how much of that was sort of predecided for him. Because I know he came in wanting to do, you know, Frank Miller's year one. Mm-hmm. But at, at the point that, that um, uh, they, they were at where I think Bat- it was called Batman Continues was going to be the, the third Tim Burton movie. And at that point, he knew that he wanted to do the Riddler and he had been um, talking to Brad Dorif mm-hmm. about being the Scarecrow. And uh, then oh, apparently they're like, well, your script is too dark and we don't want to go that direction. We want to sell more Happy Meals. But I'm wondering how much of it, like uh, the, the Catwoman was going to return. So I'm wondering how much of that relationship between, um, you, you know, the uh, Val Kilmer uh, and uh, Nicole Kidman. I'm wondering how much of that was just sort of, okay, well, we need to just kind of take what we already had pre-written or we have like this sort of a skeleton of a script and kind of askew it. Because I, I think we even had the conversation off mic where I said, it feels like they made two parallel movies without checking each other's notes and then combine them in editing later. It's certainly what it seems like. And nobody, like I said, nobody knew what they were doing. Nobody seemed to be happy. By all accounts, this seemed to be a miserable movie to make <laughs> by all like yeah you know like burton was going to direct no it. one wanted to make the movie nobody did maybe burton. schumacher and everyone else was just there <laughs> yeah so basically tim burton was going to direct it and then he opted out to not he handpicked joel schumacher himself michael keaton was going to return and then you know then of course talking about the tone shift they were like oh yeah we're gonna go for a lighter tone and michael keaton was like no i don't i don't want anything to do with that they offered him 15 million to come back and he said no so Val Kilmer accepted without even reading the script because he just wanted to play Batman. And I guess, you know, who can blame him, right? I, no, I understand. Yeah. yeah, you're offered the role to play Batman. That's awesome. Then there was so much infighting on every step of the movie. I mean, there was infighting in the pre-production as we're talking about. I mean, for first of all, when it was still under Burton, Marlon Wayans had been cast as Dick Grayson slash Robin. And then he was dropped for for Chris O'Donnell, mm-hmm. uh, which is also, you know, there, there's there's a couple instances of whitewashing that are really, really horrible. Uh, at least Marlon Wayans got paid out. <laughs> he got paid out his salary. And uh, arguably his career is probably in a better place than Chris O'Donnell's is at this moment. So, sure. you know, hey. Win-win. It sucks, but hey, he's probably doing okay. Similarly with Billy D. Williams, who played Harvey Dent in Batman 89 with the, he took it, because of the chance to eventually play Two-Face. Warner Brothers had to buy him out of his contract that he signed. It's awful. Both Marlon Wayans and Billy Day Williams, who would have, I think, been better than the two options they had. And I like Tommy Lee Jones, but like, oh my God, we'll get into that too. But, you know, so there, there was that. Michael Keaton didn't want to return. Val Kilmer and Joel Schumacher butted heads throughout like the entire production. Like they did not work well together. Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones apparently did not work well together. I think Tommy Lee Jones's exact quote was, I will not sanction your buffoonery. Yeah. Which is hilarious to me because he's arguably more over the top than Jim Carrey and far less sinister than Jim Carrey in this movie. So it's really bizarre. <laughs> I saw an interview with uh, Jim Carrey. I think he was talking to Norm MacDonald um, on a talk show and he was talking about 
um, while they were doing shooting for for uh, Batman Forever, he was at a restaurant and somebody said, "Hey, you know, you're shooting, you know, the Batman movie with Tommy Lee Jones. Well, he's here too, and there's this table." And he like walked over there and he said, as he was approaching him, he made eye contact with Tommy Lee Jones, who like he like grimaced and like looked down at his lap like an oh shit like like I don't want to do this. And he, and he said that he was nervous, but he had already committed to like crossing the room and saying hi. So he just went the rest of the way and was like, hey, hey you know, good to see you. They said Tommy Lee Jones got up and kind of just, oh, and like put his arm around him and like embraced him and said, I hate you in all of your movies. <laughs> oh my God. That's horrible. But it's, but it's like, like you said, Tommy Lee Jones is, he's out hamming, Jim Carrey in this movie. He's, He's so, so over the top. And like, I saw this movie a million times as a kid. So even as grating as performance was, like, I'm sitting here, like, quoting the lines as, like, they're happening. <laughs> you know, and it's like, today we're some of the very, serve- very same acid that make us the men we are today. <laughs> like, it's just <laughs> so ridiculously over the top. And well, I mean, like, Disney villain, <laughs> like, laughs and stuff are so insane. Well, and the fact, too, that's like, you know, okay so the other thing and and again i don't i don't care i don't again i don't care what you do with the characters but like what they chose to do with two two faces basically you know he's a disgraced da turned gangster Mm -hmm. right and so it's like in this movie he's like like literally split in half like Mm -hmm. you have uh (laughs) drew barrymore and debbie mazar playing like sugar and spice spice. yeah play the angel devil and his like whole lair is literally like split down the half down the middle (laughs) yeah it's like what the fuck is happening in the the circus scene when he like uh, attacks the ringleader and and steals his costume he brought his own ringleader costume complete with top hat already split down the middle like he had a plan like i have to get to the ringleader or else why did i bring the suit with me right one well, he also played basically it's funny again that he again that he didn't like he thought carrie was a buffoon because also too a year before this he played the prison warden in natural born killers and he's like super over the top in that movie too like it's it's so strange to me but yeah watching this movie again i was like man nothing works about this movie like other than the like you know uh, you know i mentioned his lair like the production design is really strong and you know rick baker did the makeup john dixter did the effects like you have legends behind the scenes of this movie so it's like mm-hmm. you know not all of it's a waste but like you're like as far as tone and like together like it just doesn't work and you know i know batman and robin gets gets the brunt of people shitting on these movies i think batman and robin's a better movie than this movie at least a more consistent movie batman and robin at least fully embraced it i feel Mm -hmm. like this one is a weird stepping stone between and maybe it was because tim burton was still producing it or because they didn't want to make it too dissimilar from the ones before they just wanted to make it a bit more family friendly but like i think that's why we're talking about how it's sort of atonal where there's two different things because there's there's scenes that are like they look like they're lifted out of uh batman and robin there's the scene where um, Robin steals the Batmobile and goes on a joyride and he yeah. ends up coming across a bunch of basically splatterpunks who have like glow-in-the-dark face paint and stuff and he has to fight them in this alley and there's a scene in Batman and Robin where there's like glow-in-the-dark face paint mm-hmm. splatterpunks that Poison Ivy has to fight with Bane in order to clean them out of a lair. And then there's also the similar scene 
when I was going to say Barbara Gordon, but it's not Barbara Gordon, it's Alfred's niece, but Barbara <laughs> and Alicia Silverstone steals a bike from Bruce Wayne's lair and she's doing yes. the like street racing and, and then Dick Grayson finds that she's, you know, doing that. And it's like yeah. similar Splatterpunks and Coolio. Why not? Uh, yeah. <laughs> who are hanging out there. So it feels like it's almost like a test drive for what he was going to end up making in Batman and Robin, but because he didn't fully commit to it, mm-hmm. that's why it all, it doesn't work. Like it, it's, it's sort of half cocked um, homage to um, Adam West, like a, a 1960s Batman with like complete with Foley sounds uh, when uh, uh, villains are getting like knocked over and stuff. <laughs> whoop, 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 whoop. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and like using a, a, a bat claw from the front of the Batmobile to drive up the side of a building, mm-hmm. which apparently in the production that was supposed to lead to a rooftop car chase that they didn't have the budget for, but then they ended up doing in Batman and Robin. So they just reused that idea that they had for the first one and moved it over. So it's definitely... Mm-hmm. Something where it felt like the studio was like, we need to push this out while Batman is still a hot property and we need to get money. So we'll take whatever half-baked ideas you have and, and throw it onto a screen. And it just, it stumbles the entire runtime, which is far too long as well. Yeah, just over two hours, the movie feels like an eternity. And it, it just kind of goes to show, well, you said this was like a trial run for Batman and Robin. I I wouldn't say trial run, but it was more just like, it kind of fits back into like, they didn't know what the fuck they were doing with this movie because, and, and shows that I think Schumacher was a smart guy who read the reviews because like the consensus overall was Tommy Lee Jones and Jim Carrey got a lot of praise for their performances and being fun and over the top. Same with the production design. And the biggest criticism was Val Kilmer's performance and the tonal inconsistencies. Mm. So I feel like they were like, okay, well, people liked Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones in this movie. So they went further into that tone, Um, which, you know, for better or worse, I mean, they Clooney, I know, makes fun of Batman and Robin. He always like cracks wise about that in interviews, but like he's a better Batman for that style than Val Kilmer is for sure. Like George Clooney's got a twinkle in his eye kind of has a wink like he knows what movie he's in this this batman the schumacher directed batman is very uh luxury he's he's scolding everybody he, he's very much like coming from a place of authority and talking down to everybody throughout the entire movie and he's very you know cocksure and confident and clooney sort of embodies that i mean even in uh, other things that clooney has been in he's able to talk down in a condescending manner, but a condescending manner with charm and confidence. Whereas in this, it's like, he's just being sort of a pedantic dick. And he's, he's an asshole. The entire time. Like, yeah. Yeah. Which is also baffles and not to step over you there. I'm sorry. But like the other thing that baffles me too, it's like, if you're going for a more comedic tone, Val Kilmer is and can be funny. That's the thing that blows my mind. Secret? Yeah, Top Secret is fucking Fuck great. Hilarious. I was gonna say I love Top Secret, uh, Real Genius as well. Oh yeah. Um, I mean MacGruber. I know that was a later movie, but still, like he's fucking funny when he wants to be. But even to a different extent, Tombstone that came out two years earlier in this, Absolutely. he can be charismatic and and, and tongue in cheek. He can totally command a, a camera, and he's not doing that. No, he's so stiff and and like he he's basically like he's basically like one of those cardboard cutout standees, like just like walking, like you might as well just be 
filming him like he it's just he's so dull in this movie and it's just like it blows my mind and you have like Nicole Kidman god bless her trying her hardest to get a rise a sexual rise anything out of him Mm -hmm. in this movie like she's like I mean especially the scene where it's like you know this probably might have been a a formative scene for me in my early years if we're being honest like the scene where he he shows up to her like rooftop she's like in the like flowing gown and mm-hmm. as Batman and asking, you know, you know, because she's, she's, she's a psychologist. She's got a fascination with Batman. And, you know, she says that, uh, you know, she's like, Oh, sorry. You know, I, I'm into somebody else. We know, we know what the audience at that point, that's Bruce Wayne. <laughs> and then it's like evidence of like one moment where Val Kilmer finally realized what movie he was in because he looks basically directly at the camera <laughs> and smile. <laughs> like he's like oh yeah and it's just like you know i was like okay cool the movie this movie could have used more of that but any of the stuff that like you know any of the other stuff like especially his relationship and watching this with batman and robin back to back too like especially the relationship with him and chris o'donnell versus george clooney and chris o'donnell it's just like it's so flat it's so just not there uh, like you said it's an authoritative dick as opposed to like a kind of condescending but charming well and coming from a place of it feels like knowledge like it's like uh clooney's mm-hmm. batman feels like he's been batman for a long time and what he's preaching to you is gospel like there's a reason to listen to me when i say these things whereas uh, like and maybe it's because of the i mean it's really I, I guess pretty apropos that the the motif of the movie is an identity crisis. Yes, is the movie itself has an identity crisis and is of two minds, and so it, it could be sort of the filmmakers, like subtly, like to the audience saying like, "This isn't working because we're coming off of the back of you know the Tim Burton movies, and he's still involved somehow, and Schumacher can't make the vision he wanted to make, and the studio has their hand in it." So it's all sort of uh, muddied and and messed up. And that's why I think when Schumacher was able to uh, more or less have closer to carte blanche to make Batman and Robin, these elements work a bit more because he can start from ground zero with that already in mind and like, Mm -hmm. no, okay, I'm not going to be able to make the thing I want to make. Tim Burton isn't here anymore, but we're going to make this with Clooney, who I'm not going to fight with. I think that definitely also doesn't help with the director and the lead actor fucking hate each other. And apparently... It's reported that Val Kilmer didn't speak to Joel Schumacher on set for two weeks. So, like, when the cameras weren't rolling, they wouldn't talk. So, it's like, you can't make a movie with that guy. Like, no, it's bad. You can't give him notes. Yeah. Well, and I I think, like, like the one-to-one, if you want to look at two scenes, there's, you know, the scene where there's a scene of Batman Forever. It's it's after that joyride in the Batmobile when Batman comes and saves Dick Grayson from the, the splatterpunks. And, you know, mm-hmm. he's got like his arm in a, you know, he's, he's healing his, he's got his arm in a cast and he's like, you know, talking down to him. And it's just like, really like, you know, like you said, authoritative and really just not like, you don't buy that sort of like back and forth. Whereas like, I think of the scene in Batman and Robin, you know, where they're chasing Mr. Freeze after the, uh, the gala, event and they're like over that building and he's gonna make the uh, jump with the motorcycle and he's like hold back i can make it and he stops the the motorcycle from making it yeah and then there's a scene later in the bat cave where he's just like i could have made the jump and he's like and you could splatter your brains on the side of the building like and then like th- but like that relationship works like even that exchange yeah. in a movie that silly is more believable and it may be because it feels like they've been working together for a little while so they have a bit more of a relationship but like 
this is still the first time that we've seen them together on a screen in that movie. And you, that feels more organic. It feels like, and it's even more plain, playful the way that he's also saying it is is more or less like yeah you know i trust you you probably could have made the jump at the same time there was an unnecessary risk you could have died so i wasn't going to let you take that risk and so it's exactly like, that makes more sense whereas like in forever when batman gets buried under a bunch of rocks and sand and shit and he's buried alive and then robin comes and pulls him out of it and literally saves his life and then he's like chastising him and like you could have gotten yourself killed it's just like you were gonna die what yes. are you talking about you're right. Sorry, that was the scene I was referring to, not the scene where he saves them from the the punks. I maybe mm-hmm. it blurs together in my head. Maybe they had yeah. like two same exchanges. I don't know. Well, the, the exchange you're talking about before is when he like there's like a it's like a dramatic moment of Dick Grayson being like, "I just want to get the two face," and you know it's sort of like uh, if you seek revenge, dig two graves kind of lesson that's coming from Batman, but it's right. so so monotone and, and like poorly delivered that it's like it has no weight whatsoever it's so bad um I, i'm wondering should we should we talk about jim carrey <laughs> i think that's probably i think that's another i would love to talk about jim carrey because he's <laughs> so that's another weird thing and i don't know if this is like true or not but just given how the fucking hodgepodge of this production work is probably the case and the fact that these are in pre-production even in 95 well before they shot and then you know eventually came out i feel like carrie was cast before that like one two three punch in 1994 of ace ventura dumb and dumber and the mask which were all like big fucking hits in 1994 like he was cast and they started filming and they're like oh shit people are gonna be here to see jim carrey (laughs) so they were just like just do it just go for it which is like it's like a blessing and a curse to this movie because on the one hand he gives this movie the jolt of energy that it needs because he's like he's super fucking hammy he knows what movie he's in but like he also is genuinely sinister and unhinged and crazy on the downside though like especially watching it especially knowing the context of behind the scenes and watching like his introduction like when we're first introduced to edward nigma like it, it's like zero to a hundred. Like there's no like buildup to his sort of like motivation for his villainy. Like he's just already kind of got a screw loose. Well, he almost has like a restrained rage at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's already, yeah, he's already like kind of pissed off because people write him off, even though like he's really smart, but like his, you know, his whole like, you know, thing with the brainwaves and then like, oh, you know, Bruce Wayne saying, hey, tampering with people's brains, that's a bad fucking idea. No, I'm not going to give you the money for your project. (laughs) And so, but like you needed more of that buildup. And I'm trying to think of another like, trying to think of like another contemporary example that does that well and i'm blanking at the moment but like you just needed that build up to that character before he finally does snap and you know become the riddler and i feel like even that even with a boring ass batman and a really atonal movie like something like that could really saved it but again he's already fucking crazy when he's edward nigma (laughs) and then he just like you know it's fun watching him go at 100 like those lions are burned into my brain forever (laughs) caffeine ogilvia i think there's two things with it and i I think if you wanted to look at a a a more contemporary example um that's even in the same universe of course he doesn't go to the same degree of you know level of ham but i think uh cillian murphy's scarecrow in batman begins 
where sure. he starts as like a low level guy, but there's something sort of boiling a sensor there. And then there's a slow sort of reveal before by the end of the movie, he's riding around on horseback with his hood on and shit. So, mm-hmm. but there's a slow progression throughout the movie that sort of makes that transition make sense. Whereas he does his, like he gets scorned by Bruce once, loses it. Like he's already fucking crazy. Like if, if the dude at, that you're working with at the lab has pictures of the CEO's face splastered all over his cubicle. It's right. He's flag. just muttering to himself and working on strange machines that are not part of an official project, but you like he's just doing shit in his own time. You're talking to security. Like this guy yeah. is already like way, way over the fucking line. So I don't know how he was allowed to operate at Wayne Enterprises for as long as he was. But <laughs> he's already insane when he starts off. So there is no progression. He just like hits and he's going. But then uh, another and just coming back to Tommy Lee Jones and his very strange portrayal of of Two Face is that you have two actors out hamming each other, but one of them is a comedic actor who's known for being zany and loud and boisterous and, and unhinged and, and off the cuff. And so it it feels really strange watching famous curmudgeon Tommy Lee Jones trying to out cartoon the guy who's like known for being a cartoon character. And like you said, like coming off of the mask where he played a literal like a live action cartoon character. similar character and a comic book adaptation no less yeah, yeah. exactly like it's it's spot on i like not so much spot on for the character of the riddler but in this universe it's a it's a decent portrayal of, of bringing him into sort of a schumacher-esque sort of movie and it doesn't fit two-face at all but then it feels like they're butting heads because everyone knows it in a comedy there needs to be a straight man or, or somebody who is a, a through line for the audience that they can sort of cling to and then somebody else can go off the cuff and they cause all the damage and the harm and then they, 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 they cause the drama that they have to fix. If both of the villains who are teaming up are just fucking loonies, then what are we doing here? Like, it's yeah. just too insane and implausible that any of this shit would line up. And like... Mm-hmm. And the uh, thing is too, like, you know... you we keep kind of comparing and contrasting with Batman and Robin, like even Mr. Freeze and Poison Ivy's motivations are more grounded than these guys' motivation. Like Mr. Freeze for all the freeze puns for all the Arnold stuff, like Victor Freeze's wife is catatonic and needs a cure. Like that's his motivation for all of that. So like, even though the movie's silly, it's grounded in something realistic and then Poison Ivy's a little bit more unhinged, but it's like, obviously, you know, she has a connection with Mother Nature and she was wronged. And so like, but that relationship works better because you, again, even though Arnold's throwing puns left and right, he has a sort of, he has a humanistic quality to him. Right. And there's a dramatic backdrop that they can, exactly. they can still put there. Exactly. Whereas there's none for either Edward Nigma or Harvey Dent for this movie. Well, in Two Faces, motivation is that he got acid thrown on his face while he was in court, and Batman was there trying to save him. He like he he was in full suit, just sitting in the gallery in court, I guess, and then like jumped out and tried to <laughs> shove him out of the way of the acid, and then he like. Like that shot is so fucking insane of like him in full suit jumping over the defendant's table. Yeah. Like, was he just under the judges, like just trying to get they, over like, it? Let him in, and he's just so oh, excuse me. It's yeah. uh, uh, <laughs> it's so fucking silly. I I just remembered 
the the comparison I was going to say to Edward Nigma, the the right the the one done well, it was uh, is Syndrome in The Incredibles was the oh yeah. yeah 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 where he's like you know where he's like obsessed with the hero and wants to be the hero and then like right. the hero does something and he's like okay well now I'm going to basically be that but the villain um, and fucking Pixar movie. <laughs> like yeah. I mean, not to knock Pixar's great, but like Pixar did this fucking better than <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, movie. when it's a, and it's a kids movie, so I mean, I guess they're both kids movies. So then, but you would expect the stakes would be similar. Yeah, there's much more adult things that happen. Air quotes, kids Batman movie forever. Yeah, it's they... funny because like that's another thing I want to bring up about this movie too is like especially like the weird like double entendres and all that stuff like you know they wanted to make this more kid friendly some of this is not unfounded from the Tim Burton movies like I mean like the penguin is cracking quips all Mm -hmm. through like Batman Returns that are especially overtly sexual and you know and then they're like well we can't do that movie but then like some of that shit's in this movie too so it's like what is happening like you know okay yeah nobody eats a raw fish in this movie okay sure but like <laughs> i i just it's just really confusing to me well and two things to feel like just shooting people yeah just just gunning people down and they're talking about like even in the first scene where they're like uh harvey dent's in the bank he's killed three cops and he has one yeah. hostage it's yeah. just like okay there's already a body count in this kid's movie like it's not mm-hmm. again to go back to batman and robin that one's cartoony and everyone's getting encased in ice and then batman will come along with some gadget and you'll melt them and then the, oh they shiver they're cold but like the stakes are really low and so then it's not offensive to the kids whereas like no people are straight just getting batman yeah. shot in the face in this movie yeah it's true the whole flying graysons die in this movie yeah, too on like screen. yeah yeah we watch we watch we see the the crane overhead shot of yeah. the, all of them laying on the floor dead or they all fall to the desk yeah yeah it just doesn't like it doesn't make any sense um it's funny. I said this off mic and I want to at least say this on, on air before we move on as a kid, my order of these movies. And I liked all of them as a kid, like mind you, but my order as a kid would have been from best to worst, Batman forever, Batman and Robin, Batman, 1989, Batman returns as an almost 31 year old. It would, it's literally the exact opposite. It's Batman Returns, <laughs> Batman 89, then Batman and Robin, and then d- down below Batman Forever. I, it blows my mind. I mean, I know kids are both smart and stupid at the same time, you know, but it's like, I don't know why I like this one so much. Maybe it's Jim Carrey. I don't know. Like, because I did, you know, I, I love, still love you and I, when we lived together, before you moved, we watched The Mast, and it yeah. held up surprisingly well. I mean, some of the effects are pretty poor and dated, but, like, as an actual movie, it held up pretty well. And so, like, I still like those movies. I still like Jim Carrey, but, like, I don't know, man. This movie is a fucking mess. <laughs> like, well, and it's not it's not a Jim Carrey vehicle, really, because it's, like, Jim Carrey's off, and he's going nuts, and he's doing his own thing, but, like, he's not the star no probably lee jones is going off he's being crazy he's also not the star thankfully Mm -hmm. because he's he's bonkers and then the star is val kilmer who's like you said a cardboard cutout and the plot elements are just sort of loosely strung together i I mean i think one of the things i wanted to mention i I didn't know how to mention it I, i know that you said earlier that there was weird like leftover strange sexual tensions that were more prevalent 
in uh, Batman Returns um, that sort of bled over into this one. And I think one of the scenes that I felt really encapsulated, like really strange out of place sexual tensions was the scene where Robin is doing his laundry. And uh, <laughs> which doesn't, doesn't serve a fucking purpose at all. It's it because it, they show... Uh, I think the, what we're seeing before this is is uh, the Riddler and Two Face are hanging out and doing like a villain thing, and then we cut away to um, the uh, Alfred at uh, Wayne Manor who's mopping. He's doing something in the laundry room, and then Robin comes in with a with a, a basket of wet clothes, um, and then he starts like swinging his socks around with like like a, some music playing, and it's making like like air swish sounds, and he like. Uh, pinches his, his sweatpants and his toes in like a Tarantino-esque barefoot sh shot and he sloshes all the water out of it. My wife pointed out that there is a, a dryer just in the background. Like, you don't need to be doing any of this shit. But he like, he like sloshes all the water off, throws it over a clothesline that's in there and then like turns to Alfred and like winks in like a very like sexual sort of like, did you see that? And he like walks out of the room and we get a reverse shot of Alfred's like dumbfounded face. <laughs> like, what the fuck was that? <laughs> Which was, I'm sure, what my face looked like. And then the scene cuts back to Two Face and Riddler. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I, I there's no purpose. No, it doesn't. And and granted, you know, I I'm all for like Schumacher sort of like overt home eroticism, especially in Batman and Robin. Um, to put a cap on it with what you just said, I mean, that's pretty much this whole movie. It's just scene after scene with no real good through line and they, and things just happen for no reason. And it, it just, yeah, I, I yeah. It, it, again, to me, this is the most sort of boring kind of whether it's a tonal shift or whatever the case, this is the most boring kind because it was made by committee. Like right. I'm all for the whiff. I'm all for the carte blanche with which Batman and Robin arguably relatively is um, right. our other two movies relatively are, but this is the most boring kind of whiff of like, we didn't know what we were doing. So we threw everything at the wall and hoped things stuck. Um, and I feel like memory, you know, people's memory of this one, I, I think people a certain age, like you and I were big fans of Jim Carrey. So I think that sticks. I also think Batman and Robin bears the brunt of the punishment because it was less financially successful. So therefore in people's minds, that one's worse, but I think because this movie is a hit, it bought it a pass. I think also Batman and Robin gets more flack because it is memorable because a lot of people, they love to quote Schwarzenegger's Mr. Freeze and all of his puns. Or they'll Always winterize your pipes. I said that shoveling snow the other day. Like, <laughs> there's, there's stuff in Batman and Robin that, that stands out and is memorable. Clooney's performance is memorable. The Bat credit card. There's stuff in the movie that is memorable. Uma Thurman is vamping it up, knows exactly He's what loving the shit out of it. Yeah. There's nothing like that in Batman Forever. It's so forgettable. And I think <laughs> that is why it's not the most universally panned one in the series. I think you're right. I 100% think you're right. Like, Batman and Robin threw it all out there. Maybe it didn't work. But at least when it, it, yeah. it went for it with a plum and I, I appreciate it. Whereas Batman forever is so self-conscious. It doesn't know what it wants to be. And it's uh, therefore, like I said, really only Carrie is the only thing that 
makes this movie anything and even then he's <laughs> sort of left out hung to dry by the fact that like his character doesn't even get a really good arc i was gonna say speaking of movies that uh are so uh lacking so much confidence that they uh don't make a uh, you know a, a statement of their own how about a movie that is so overconfident uh it, it makes the exact opposite uh, effect of uh, a statement that probably nobody really needed to hear and that's escape from la <laughs> <laughs> or a middling sort of message yeah so escape from la here's here's kind of a perfect like big budget what um you know and i kind of tease this at the front there's some baseline similarities to texas chainsaw 2 if we're gonna tie it all back uh if we're gonna come full circle here i mean number one both carpenter and toby hooper prefer these versions over their well-regarded predecessors uh both of them are long gap sequels Texas Chainsaw, of course, came out 12 years after Texas Chainsaw 2, excuse me, came out 12 years after the original. Right. This movie is sick, uh, 15 years after Escape from New York. They basically, or at least Escape from LA came because of fan like anticipation, uh, mm-hmm. because pe- pe- over the years it had developed such a cult following. Um, the other similarities, both filmmakers had elements of comedy that they thought shown didn't show through the original. Uh, you know, Carpenter thought he had like silly B-movie stuff, which to a certain extent is the case in Escape from New York. Um, I think of specifically like Ernest Borgnine's character, uh, Cabby, but like I think even then it's kind of in service of uh, you know, the the grittier, grimier tone of that movie. So Escape from LA, I mean, right out the gate goes, it, it's, it is the definitive rehash. I guess that's the thing too, of the three movies we talked about today, it is the one that literally is like beat for beat. It's oh, yeah. predecessor, you know, it's, it's a whole nother um, cataclysmic event that has soldered off la as being this like high criminal activity you know the unwanted the deplorables everybody goes there after they uh you know commit a crime snake has to go in to uh to do a mission uh he's injected with another lethal dose or is he yeah, uh, right. <laughs> yeah I, i'm assuming people have seen this movie and again you know we said this many episodes ago spoilers abound yeah. um but, you know, he's injected with another thing. He's gone through a mission. And as I was watching this movie, and I don't take a lot of notes when we watch these movies. I just, it's just, just how I roll, think differently. But like, the, I did take one note with this movie. And that is, this is simultaneously one of the most smartest, prophetic, and yet dumbest fucking movies that I think I've ever seen in my entire life. Because it, on the one hand, some of the shit that this movie called is like kind of scary. I mean, sure. I think it, I think in terms of like Cliff Robertson's like faux evangelical, like president who's like serving mm-hmm. a lifetime term. I'm like, first of all, I mean, but it's like, I said this in 2016, I was like, why do you think every fucking would be dictator in these post-apocalyptic movies all look like Donald Trump? There's a fucking mm-hmm. reason because he's a fucking fascist. Like that's the case in this, like, like the fact that, somebody had coaxed the nation into believing X under the guise of like religious faux beliefs uh, while being a complete charlatan, complete con man is like, it's scary. Like it's scary how accurate this fucking movie is in that regard. But then there's like the surfing scene. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, and, and like I said, it's it's pretty much like it's a beat for beat recreation or recreation of the first one. There, there's even the the scene from Escape from New York after <clears throat> he finds the homeless guy who's wearing the president's ankle monitor or, or uh, wrist monitor, mm-hmm. um, and so then he's like, "Well, shit! Now, like, now what do I do?" And he walks outside and like pulls up a lawn chair and takes a seat. And is just kind of like almost at a point of like giving up, like, well, what, what the fuck do I do next? They they reuse that in here where he goes mm-hmm. to where he's supposed to find um, Che Guevara and he's not there. And so then he walks outside and pulls up a lawn chair and takes a seat. And it's like, <laughs> like it, it's so refer- self-referential that it, it does feel, and I think even uh, Carpenter, if he hasn't outright said it, did allude to the fact like, this is the movie I wanted to make in the first place. Yeah, but because of a bunch of constraints or any number of things i wasn't able to do it and then same thing with kurt russell who in this movie it's his first writing credit and his only writing credit um he said that he loved snake plissken as a character so much and wanted to play him so much that he like he wanted to jump in and help carpenter finish the script so that they can make the movie and do it so like you can definitely tell that they're is a love and a care for the story that they're they're trying to tell and there's you know many ways it's successful many ways that ways it's unsuccessful and i've said this about john carpenter before we'll definitely have a john carpenter episode later on where we sort of go over his filmography a bit more in depth but if don't give the man a budget or or give him just enough budget to where he needs to remain on his toes because like you see what happens when they're like, hey, um, no-name director, make a movie about killing babysitters. Cool. Okay, here's Halloween, and it'll just change the slasher genre forever. Uh, okay, uh, make a movie based on uh, this uh, no-name uh, writer at the time, uh, Stephen King. He made a movie about a killer car. Okay, here's Christine. It's a fucking classic. But it, like, if you give the dude just enough to make the movie with, he will have to get creative. And because his mind works in the way that it does, he makes excellent movies because of it. Whereas you give him money, you get Escape from L.A. <laughs> yeah, that's a valid point. I mean, I think his pretty much 90s run to The Ward, which I think is the last movie he directed, um, I think pretty much shows that. I mean, as evident by his like Halloween to I'd say They Live run is pretty unprecedented. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even in the 90s, I mean, In the Mouth of Madness is a pretty awesome movie oh, as sure. well. Um, but yeah, I think similarly, you know, you get The Village of the Damned, which is a pretty bland remake of, of that yeah. movie. You got this, you get Vampires, uh, Ghosts Ghost of, of Mars. Ghosts of Mars, which was pretty much supposed to be the third escape mm-hmm. movie. Like, it was supposed to be Escape from Mars. And this movie tanked so badly that they were like, well, we don't want to do relate it. it. Yeah, so they just made an unrelated movie, but it's pretty much relatively similarly in story. Um, right. But yeah, I agree. I mean, that's the thing. It's like Escape from New York uh, had a low budget. It was resourceful. Um, it was very gritty. It's very economical. Like, you know, mm-hmm. it's super streamlined plot. Um, you know, it's 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 very, you know, it's just, it's just an awesome movie. It's one of my favorite movies. You know, it's not one of the greatest movies, but it's personally one of my favorite, you know, movies ever made. And so Escape from LA is just like, yeah, it, it literally is just a, 50 million dollar fucking rehash of the first one but yet it still has those 
flashes of brilliance in it. And I think that's sure. what makes the movie uh, such a what it, it's that juxtaposition of having, you know, as I mentioned, these like really like frighteningly prophetic things that are in the movie. And then yet like you hired a special effects company who had never done CGI before. And Oh boy. And it shows, you know what I mean? Like, like right. that type of stuff. Um, but I do think similarly, there's things here. Also, it makes it a what because the movie is so, it, it is really confident. I think like you said up front, the movie is very confident. Um, maybe, maybe almost too much hubris, so to speak. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, similarly to Texas Chainsaw 2, I think there are elements that are deliberately trolling the first movie. Oh, yeah. um, and I never noticed that in previous viewings, but I did notice that a couple times here, uh, um, a little bit with a sequence that you just talked about, but I think the one, cause I've always made fun of the basketball scene in this movie. Um, but what I appreciated it at least about this time out is like, I, I never really paid attention to how, like, you know, the, the long drawn out walk up through the field when they're taking snake plus through mm-hmm. the field and you have those like bodybuilder guys like lifting weights and like totally pumping iron and so like if you hadn't seen this movie before you think that they're going to do the exact same thing from escape from new york where he's gonna have to fight like a really buff dude in like a call in the ring with a trash can lid yeah exactly yeah. like to have like actual like one-on-one combat and so like it sets up that expectation and it's like no you're just playing full court basketball by yourself <laughs> you have 10 seconds to make a shot on either side of the court like i i was like okay i was like i i always made fun of this scene but i think that's genuinely funny after watching it again <laughs> well and i think i mean the movie knows it the movie is like equal parts homage to not just escape from new york but other action movies of its ilk but it's also part uh, satire of yeah. sort of the genre of the the lone wolf killer. And Snake Plissken's character is so over the top. I mean, in, in the first one, in Escape from New York, he's, you know, he's renowned. He, he's got like a, a, a reputation as a criminal. But by the time they get to this one, there's like, he's almost God tier in the way that yeah. people talk about him. And, he's and like a legend. He's yeah, like he's he's moved beyond now. He's an icon, and in, in not just the world of crime, but then like also cops as well. They're like, oh, and they're uh, something that he did in Cleveland. Is that what they're referencing? Like, it oh, is like, Cleveland. Did you, yeah, yeah. You get out of Cleveland, which I, I didn't think anything exciting could ever happen in Cleveland. But the the ask LeBron James. Yeah, he left. Uh, <laughs> the, but <laughs> uh, but like the way that they build this up from the beginning like they're hitting the same story beats of you know marching him in he's even wearing the exact same costume that he wore in the first movie when he arrives which is like (laughs) you a fucking cartoon character like you you don't have another wardrobe but then like they (laughs) split it out to where he's wearing like the the, he's wearing the long leather duster and and like they take everything and they just boost it up to a further degree Mm -hmm. and I, it's so tongue in cheek that all of these elements, like they don't work very well. And we've already touched on the, the, the visuals and we will touch on the visual effects again. One of, one of the street signs I saw when the, 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 there's like an opening establishing shot and there's like a, 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 like a highway sign that's sort of submerged in water or whatever. And it's literally just like, like block text from a word document that they like put in there and just sort of shifted it at a part of an angle and they're like yep looks good 
it's it so is- bad. I think arguably even worse than that. And I know the surfing scene, which, which is talked about, um, starring the other co-star of easy rider uh so we right. have another uh connection with sixteen um but uh is the opening earthquake scene like the the actual like miniature is good but then when you cut to like the cgi building and the glass shattering oh, man. it's so fucking bad dude like it's and like it's it's the sort of thing that's like unforgivable in a low budget movie and this movie had a $50 million budget. Yeah, like you said, it, it seems like it's super tongue-in-cheek. It seems also, it's funny too, because the first one is so like, even though it has its dated aspects, it does feel a little, um, you know, uh, uh, timeless, I guess, so to speak, because it mm-hmm. is so resourceful and because it's so like micro-budget. Whereas this one... Um, you know, it's like, I, I, I stand by what I said about it being prophetic, but it's also like fucking dated. It's more dated than the first one is oh, yeah. for a couple reasons. I mean, the visual effects that we are referring to, uh, the soundtrack too also dates this movie. Like the other thing is like, yeah, it's, it it's like Carpenter's synth score is like really what kind of is like a huge driving force of the first one. Like it's super like, it's minimalist. It's yeah, but it's really propulsive as well mm-hmm. and this one has like i mean i love tool but like it's got like fucking tool tracks and i think isn't there an offspring it's song it's the only movie? licensed yeah there's an offspring song or it's is it batman forever uh, uh tool song that's on there yeah or is it batman forever i'm thinking oh, about that has know. the offspring song the i might be getting my movies mixed up it is batman forever it's when he goes on the fucking joyride with the batmobile when dick grayson does it's oh, smash good. it up by the offspring that plays oh, <laughs> sorry yeah, i'm getting right. my fucking movies mixed up both of them have dated fucking soundtracks uh, talking about the dated looks of them too because i mean like they did use some visual effects in escape from new york but they used them in such a, a minimal way i mean like talking about getting to the islands themselves in escape from new york he like rides the glider in yeah and the glider doesn't look that great but like they're using matte paintings and james like a young james cameron worked on the matte paintings and stuff on on escape from new york and so yeah. like there, there's a bit more practical craft going into the background of those things. But then the scene where the, the president, like Air Force One crashes or whatever, and it, it hits a, a building, they show like, it's like, oh, coming in 10 seconds, five seconds, but they don't show like a terrible visual effect of a cartoon plane smashing into a PlayStation One era building or whatever. They cut back to like, a, it's like a grid. It's like a glow in the dark grid. And they sort of show the point of like the black box falling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that is a, is a clever way of cutting around the fact that you couldn't possibly shoot a plane hitting a building. Uh, um, but th- then we get to Escape from LA where he goes in on a like straight up 2D panel cartoon submarine that he comes flying in and like uh, a shark that looks like it's straight out of like Legend of Zelda tries and like bite it on the way by and it like crashes through a building it like it looks like um it looks like the incredible bulk uh, the amazing bulk (laughs) like terrible plug-in effect movie it looks so awful and it's like terrible that's the thing i'm talking about if you didn't hand a bunch of money to carpenter where he could go like i have this idea in my head of how it's supposed to look 
I can't shoot it practically. I'll just have some VFX studio do it and give them the money. And then probably just wasn't supervising and didn't see that they were making that garbage. But I'm sure that if you didn't give Carpenter the money, he would have to find a creative way around doing that stuff in order to make it look better and come out on camera. Like it needs to be shot in the camera. And if it's a huge, huge mistake to go into VFX in this. It is a huge mistake. And yet the bones for this movie are still like, you know, it's it's kind of, it's almost a mantra at this point, four episodes in of like good bones. Like it's got, mm-hmm. I mean, you you have the elements here. You have the, the sort of like sly satire, both of society, but also of its first movie. You have Kurt Russell, who is a little bit more of a wink in this movie for sure, but oh, sure. he's he's great as always um you know him and john carpenter both think they always make westerns so he's <laughs> got that fucking john wayne impersonation down to a t yeah. um but like like that's fun i think a lot of the supporting cast is genuinely fun in the movie um who steve buscemi's good um I think uh, Bruce Campbell shows up as well as the, <laughs> the surgeon of Hollywood, mm-hmm. uh, who's great. Uh, Pam Greer, who uh, is good, but yeah. uh, a lot of weird implications there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> potentially problematic. But uh, I don't think they went anything. I don't think they did anything too far. I was really worried when the scene started, and then by the time it ended, I was just like, "There's no, there was no bad uh, blood or anything in there." There's no. no. I don't think it's malicious. Poke no. fun or make jabs of it. It was. It, I, I guess. I don't know egregious. Uh, but I like I, I don't know if if they were trying to say something and failed but I mean either way it was it's fairly inert by the end of it and I was like okay cool yeah <laughs> that was a scene that's a character um but then there's also uh Valeria Golino who uh yeah. you may recognize her from Hot Shots um so she shows up and I was just like oh shit we're Topper Harley so and yeah there's definitely <laughs> a, a cavalcade of people that show up in the movie and I think they all do a great job a lot of them I mean in Valeria's case she meets the um she's basically the surrogate in this movie for Escape from New York's girl who tries to latch on to Snake and gets dragged through the floor by the sewer mutants who Adrian Barbeau on that screen. movie yeah 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 so there's definitely like one-to-one with some characters but I mm-hmm. think overall what this movie did i think there's also a bit of or at least you mentioned already bruce campbell and that whole scene like the surgery and sort of like the weird freaks that are like walking around in there um it reminded me a lot of big trouble in little china and sort of that feel that um carpenter was trying to do with with sort of these weird characters that are like these these underground shops that like weird sort of uh, monsters and stuff and they don't really go too far i mean of course he like spits a pin into uh, Bruce Campbell's head and then like orchestrates an escape but there's sort of weird and that's why I think it's like a really effective satire and stuff of like John Carpenter's filmography but then also sort of the genre as a whole of bringing in these elements that sort of uh, like remind you of of, or echo like past movies like that and then you can be like oh okay this is kind of fun because it reminds me of I mean other fun movies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it, it, it weirdly watching it this time too, you know, to kind of go with the satire and the rug pull uh, of this movie, I think it like really uh, surprisingly came together for me on the ending rewatching this again, because it actually genuinely does in a couple ways subvert 
both subvert the expectations that we had known from the first movie in a way that is mm-hmm. actually satisfying and not just for the sake of taking the piss out of it. Um, that actually mm-hmm. calls back to the beginning in a smart way. It's also incredibly nihilistic. Like I actually forgot how fucking <laughs> like yeah. bleak the ending of this movie is, which kind of also like fits into the what sort of aspect of the movie, um, which is just like, again, this movie's fucking silly. It's fucking goofy um it's smart in a lot of ways and then it's just like oh yeah we just you know the whole power to the world cut yeah we're in the stone age now and it was like oh my god i forgot that's how this fucking movie (laughs) ended (laughs) well and just and just ballsy too because apparently like the ending was was like wholly owned and written by uh kurt russell like he apparently that was his that he wanted it to end like that and they had gone through a few revisions and, and in earlier episodes the the president got the got the thing and they shoot and kill snake Plissken, or he's able to detonate the thing but he still gets killed by the end of it like he he's not a hologram and so then he like enacts it but they still shoot him and kill him or whatever and it's it's weird because snake walks away from this but like snake is not a hero he's an an anti-hero to the t he's like not a good guy and that's okay like it's it's fine to have a character who's like not a good guy but like this heel turn at the end almost sort of makes him a villain because i mean like even the president who's like straight up like you said he's a fascist he is trying to basically rule the world with an iron thumb uh um you know the the i think it's the the cubans are coming across uh the the gulf and they're going to attack florida is what they're talking about and so then he's going to launch the satellite and stop their power instead of doing like walking knocking out dc or doing something like that snake just basically nukes the earth which is like you just caused a like that's like a holocaust man (laughs) you just doomed everybody it's so extreme and so absurd that I mean, that alone gives the movie sort of a what in my book of just like I uh, can't root for the guy. Like he didn't do the right thing. No, no, he didn't. He didn't. Yeah, he did not do the right thing. I mean, there's 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 questions of whether or not Mookie throwing the uh, garbage can through Sal's pizza is the right thing and do the right thing. But there's no question that this was not the right call. No, <laughs> and he does it anyway, which is which is. I, I don't know. I think it's fascinating um, because it, it, it also, you know, to go with what you're saying to subvert what we know of this genre is like, you know, Snake Plissken, even in the first one is an antihero. I mean, it's very clear. He's very ambivalent to any sort of like lawful structure. He's a criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a war hero, but you know, still a criminal nonetheless. Um, and he, and he only takes, this job because his life depends on it his freedom depends on it um you know similarly in this movie but it really does like you know again subvert the expectation that like that snake plissken is a good guy by the end of it because it's like oh you know he may be a better guy better guy than our you know the fascist president here but still not a good guy and i think that's like fascinating especially with an actor as sort of like charismatic likable and bankable as kurt russell um which maybe you know you said that that ending was largely credited to him and maybe that's partially why he wanted to do that i mean given the carte blanche the carpenter got for this movie and you know russell was was a big star by this point that they could sell the movie just on him solely 
that he had the opportunity to like, oh, I'm going to do something different. I'm not going to do tango and cash or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be captain Ron, sure. like I'm going to do something that's uh, overboard. Like I'm going to do something that's like really drastically different from the image that I'm known for. Right. Um, which uh, like I guess that I don't know if it works thematically. It certainly makes it muddied, which makes it interesting right. and a what, um, but it, at least I, I think it makes the movie more fascinating than just a silly like piss take rehash of the first one is by oh, for sure. on such an incredibly bleak note yeah well and i think his character in escape from la probably has more of an arc and more growth than he did in escape from new york because i mean yeah. in escape from new york he's you know dropped in but he's you know a, a man out for himself there he's not out to rescue anybody he partners with characters but he only partners with them so long as they are useful to him and then they they die or he's just fine moving on and leaving them wherever they happen to land whereas in this one he sent in there and the president is like if you find my daughter in there kill her like we don't need to bother with doing a execution or, or like uh, here and, and that whole thing just kill her while you're in there and we'll say that she you know died uh you know by happenstance so when they Ross Pats finally when they're in LA and he's like down in the lower sewer system and he has the option to shoot her he doesn't there there's something in there like that he didn't really display in Escape from New York where he's just like well I'm not going to kill this woman because I don't you know have a reason to or whatever um, it could just be you know, I'm not going to follow orders or whatever but he goes on to ultimately get her out of LA and he saves her which is the most heroic thing that he had done across two movies was getting her out of there. Yeah. And then he flips around and nukes the planet. Nukes <laughs> <laughs> the <like> planet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That's a that's another conversation for a different day. But yes. Yeah. Another episode. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 it is like I said, I think it is fascinating. I think that what is what makes this movie at least it's it's a more interesting movie for the character, but it's a less interesting movie is a movie than right escape from new york and the just also taking la and making it much more of a spectacle much more of a fun house i mean like in in escape from new york there's not really any big set pieces i mean like they they drive down the street in cabby's car and people try and break into it and they ultimately don't the fighting Um, coliseum scene is probably like the the coliseum is probably the biggest thing that they do whereas in this one like there's the the a uh, motorcycle uh, mm-hmm. chase through the parade and then he's like shooting people and shit's exploding um the there's the um the shootout where he tosses the can in the air and shoots all the dudes in the chest before they they have a chance to draw because they you know, cheated uh yeah. there's the bruce campbell and the weirdos in the um the the surgery room downstairs there's the hang gliding machine gun attack uh that happens at the end which is uh fucking bonkers because hang gliders don't do that (laughs) just flying around in circles like not touching the ground for doing this movie it's just oh okay cool and they have like a uh like a rpg shootout at the end with like a flaming helicopter ride out like it it just like texas chainsaw 2 the last 30-ish minutes of this movie just like okay it's a fun house ride now yeah we're going to abandon all pretense of this being like a deep story and any characterization 
we're just going to do some goofy shit for a while. And they, and they really just kick it off with the, they kick it off with the basketball game that you mentioned earlier. Like we go basketball game to surfing and jumping on the back of Steve Buscemi's car as he's speeding away to like, we just start hitting like weirder after weirder after weirder set piece until ultimately the planet gets nuked and then snake walks off into the night. Never to be seen again. (laughs) I couldn't tell the difference between post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic LA and Burning Man. I just, I, I couldn't. <laughs> they just reused footage? They just, yeah, it might as well have been, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, I, I pretty much, I echo the sentiment that you're saying. Like this movie just goes off the rails and it doesn't even care. And then it gets back on relatively only sure. to really go off again. Yeah. Yeah, in a different it's way. It's just a spike in extremes. Like they, they bring it back down. Like okay, he's out of L.A. What did we see in the first movie? Ultimately, he gives like the the Hartford summons uh, tape to the president uh, for him to play, and then the tape is uh, it's it's ruined, or he had done something to the tape to where it didn't play. Mm-hmm. It doesn't quite go their way. It's I need to go back and rewatch New York, but um, that uh, on a on a scale oh no he you he has cabbie's uh uh that's the music yeah yeah and so yep. he plays it and it was supposed to be the audio and then we see snake walking into the night and he ruins the tape but more or less like you ruined a meeting that the president was gonna have like yep. okay like cool cut to nuking the planet <laughs> <laughs> It's, a, it's pretty drastic. There's a raisin stakes. <laughs> just a little one. bit. Just a and little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. Um, do you have any other thoughts on Escape from LA before we start to wind this down? Uh, no, Escape from LA drained all thought from my brain. But I think that <laughs> is kind of the best way to enjoy it. I think I, I, a lot of people like to poo poo um escape from la and i wouldn't say that it's completely unfounded or inappropriate Uh, there's definitely many reasons to um laugh at the movie and and not laugh with it uh, especially in the visual effects department but i think going into escape from la not trying to compare it to escape from new york which is really just a completely different movie in in every shape Mm -hmm. and form but going into it expecting a satire kind of like we said about texas chainsaw uh too going in expecting it to be poking fun to be really kind of tongue-in-cheek but then also if you have any sort of history with john carpenter and loving his works and you know sort of hearkening back to the moods and tones of movies like big trouble in little china which were also sort of tongue-in-cheek comedic movies it's much more enjoyable if you're just sort of along for the ride I think I think yeah I think uh I couldn't say it better myself I mean I think it is it is a fun movie to watch I I don't think I could ever particularly hate it and so I don't understand you know quite from that point of view you know but like you said if you do watch it with the frame of mind that it's different and you're just long for it then it's fun but yeah if you're comparing it to escape from new york the entire time you're just gonna be fuming mad because you're gonna have a bad time you're gonna gonna have a bad time (laughs) uh well i think uh i think it's a good cap uh to put on this episode um yeah uh for for 
anybody who wants to check out these movies, they're all pretty relatively available. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is on iTunes to render purchase. There's also a Screen Factory Blu-ray. Actually, I don't want to speak too soon. I think it might be out of print. Um, so I mean, <laughs> somebody else is probably going to put it out <laughs> sooner or later. Uh, but it is available on iTunes. Uh, Batman Forever and Escape from LA are pretty much available on every rental uh, and purchase platform that you could find i know as far as subscriptions at the time of the recording batman forever is on hbo max and escape from la is on prime video um obviously things will change but uh, maybe not so much batman forever it's warner brothers owns hbo max it might be there forever right um, oh no oh, god <laughs> we weren't done groaning over that movie yet we had to groan over it one more time um but next Next week, I was going to say next week, but actually the next couple episodes, mm-hmm. um, you and I came to a joint decision on something. Yeah. Um, with the, the impending release of, uh, is it Kong versus Godzilla or is it Godzilla versus Kong? Godzilla versus Kong. Okay. Yeah. Godzilla versus Kong on, on March 31st, uh, we sort of decided to uh, run the gambit, so to speak, of um those series of, of monster movies, not necessarily monster movies as a whole, but specifically Godzilla's movies and King Kong's movies and have uh, weekly episodes discussing uh, giving a good, bad what uh, of those series movies leading up to that release, which we will then ultimately discuss. So yeah, you're listening to this episode on March 12th. So uh, as Chris said, we we're going to be talking about Godzilla and Kong movies and the good, bad, what of those uh, March 19th, we are going to be doing Godzilla movies and March 26th, we're going to be doing King Kong movies. So look forward to that. And then sometime April 2nd or maybe April 5th, uh, depending on when we get to watch the movie, we're going to do our first ever mini-sode um, where we're just going to discuss Godzilla versus Kong, um, which I don't think you could blame us because we're going to be watching a shitload of Godzilla and King Kong movies to prepare for this episode. So it only makes sense that we do one episode where we just talk about one movie. Um, So we're going to get into that. You can find all of our episodes on our website at thegoodbadwhat.com. You can subscribe to us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, and many others. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at TheGoodBadWhat. If you're feeling generous and want to support the show, we have a donations tab on our website, and all donations will go back into the show itself, whether that's to offset the cost of running movies that we discuss or upgrading our equipment. Our logo comes from Michelle Parkos, and our theme music comes from Paco, whose portfolio and SoundCloud links you can find in the show notes, respectively. Chris, where can more people find you online? Uh, yeah, they can find me at uh, Christo 89 on Twitter, and that's pretty much it. Uh, you could find me at ryolli 90 R-Y-O-L-L-I-E-90. That's pretty much my handle across all socials. That's Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Um, if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can email us at the good, the bad, the what at gmail.com. Um, so thank you for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye.